0: Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show to help you understand your money. This week, we're going to look at the stock market's action in the run-up to the election, which is going to be tomorrow. I am taping this show on Monday, November 2nd, so all the excitement happens tomorrow on Tuesday, November 3rd, and it's important for you to know that as you're listening to the show. We also are going to look at how people gamble in the stock market in addition to investing in it and what the differences in those activities are. We're going to look at some changes to required minimum distribution rules. We're also going to look at the differences between SEPs and SIMPLES if you're trying to set up a retirement plan for your small business. So let's get started talking about what the market did last week. And that was for the week ending October 30th, 2020. It was a really bad week in the market. I think finally a lot of just nerves got a hold of the market. You know, the market gets edgy just like we do. And when the market gets edgy, it tends to take a little risk off the table by going down. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down last week just a tiny bit under 6.5%, while the S&P 500 went down a little more than 5.5%. Even the NASDAQ got in on it, going down 5.5%. Gold, it may come as a surprise to you, went down 1.29%. West Texas Intermediate, or oil, went down 10.21%. Now, in light of all of that risk off of the market, you might expect the treasury yield to go up, and you would be correct. The treasury yield went up 13.32%, while the aggregate bond fund went down about 0.2%. So that negative correlation between interest rates and bond market and bond fund performance continued on as we'd expect it to. And the dollar went up 1.2%. Remember, we're tracking the dollar because there's so much news about, oh, wow, is the dollar falling a lot? You know, is the dollar safe as a currency? So I started providing the dollar information quite a few weeks ago now so that people could track and see that really the dollar doesn't move a lot. That is why it's still the global reserve currency because our dollar is very stable, and we want it to remain like that. Now, I read a really interesting article this week talking about research that people are doing on um, investors' market behavior. And I'd heard things sort of referring to this for almost as long as the pandemic's been going on. But this was a slightly more scholarly article, and so I thought that we might be able to get some interesting information out of it. So it looks like people are gambling on the stock market possibly because it's still hard for them to go into casinos. But in fact, people are gambling in the market three and a half times the global gambling activity in everything else, and that's casinos, online gambling, gaming machines, bingo, Horse track, sports betting, just basically the whole thing. So, three and a half times people are gambling in the stock market. Now, as interesting as that is, I think we need to start defining some terms. And I think that on the surface, it's easier to have this argument than it is when you think about it a little bit further. What does it mean to gamble on a stock? Well, it means that you're not actually having any intention of holding it for the long term. You're not putting it in your portfolio to have it go up for the next five years. This isn't the S&P 500 index. You're making an investment hoping that in the short run, it will go up. Now, the other word for gambling is speculating. And speculating is a much more common market term than gambling. And I would argue that everything that I've been reading has been kind of just using the term gambling because average people know what it means better. But the truth is a speculator invests in in something just with the sheer hope that it's going to go up quickly where an investor is trying to grow wealth over the long run. I honestly think when you get really down to the details it can be tricky to know whether someone is gambling or speculating. Now, I never talk about stocks in, in this show because that's just not what we do. And there is a long list of stocks in the article that I'm referring to that I'm not going to give to you because I am not even for one second suggesting that I think you should buy these stocks. But they're names that you haven't probably heard of. Typically, when people are speculating, they're not speculating on something that's really expensive, and they're not speculating on something that's really well-known, because the whole idea of speculating is trying to get in on it first. Think about like the old gold miners. They were speculators, right? They were in there. They were looking for the gold. Well, obviously, if the gold's right there, everybody's going to know it's there, and it's going to be much harder to make money in it. So... What does this mean to you as an investor? Well, first, remember that anytime something is not well known, anytime something is promised to have a big growth return, there's all kinds of red flags that need to be going up. Because even if legitimately the people who are proposing that you buy this mean well, it's still very unlikely that the unknown stock becomes the home run hit. Remember Commodore computers back in the late 70s, very early 80s? That was what everybody who had a home computer had. And Commodore doesn't even exist anymore. But Commodore stock was kind of a big deal because people thought it was going to be the thing and they lost their shirts on it because Commodore computers didn't make it. So remember that anytime you're speculating on something unknown, even if it's all legit, it's probably not gonna make it. The second thing to remember though is a lot of times people will have a company create a stock and then they do something called a pump and dump. They pump it up, they put out all this literature, all this data saying, ooh, buy this. You know, Back when people had fax machines, you get a fax with a list of stocks. Today you get emails, you may see it advertised online, you'll see it in chat rooms. And the truth of the matter is, the people who are promoting this stock know good and well there's nothing going on in it. They just want you to buy it because they already own it. So they pump the price up, and then when the price gets to the price, they want to sell their shares. They sell their shares, everything drops out, and they so they dump, and then you're left holding the bag with a bunch of shares that are worth nothing. Penny stocks are inherently unbelievably risky, Penny stocks might even be worse than going into a casino for the probability that you'll hit a small jackpot. So you've gotta be really, really careful. Pink sheet stocks, really, really dangerous. Brand new companies, maybe not a scam, maybe not on the pink sheets. Um, Pink sheet stocks are stocks that the company's in some financial trouble. But brand new companies probably aren't gonna make it. So I'm not telling you, not to do it, but I want to be absolutely sure that you know what you're doing, that you're gambling. When you're buying a stock and you're just kind of hoping it goes up, you know, all your friends own it. That's also not generally a good sign. Be very careful. And like any other gambling, you can only put in what you can afford to lose. It is possible to have a stock market addiction, just like it's possible to have a horse racing addiction or a slot machine addiction. So you've got to be aware that this is risky. There's a reason we have the disclaimers. And this kind of behavior is like way past the word risky. You need to be very, very careful. You need to be aware that you're basically putting your money on a roulette wheel and make the decisions about what you're doing related to that. And really think 18,000 times before you bet your life savings. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And I don't know whether you listen to the show carefully enough to remember several months ago when I said that the Department of Labor was looking to restrict the use of socially conscious funds in qualified retirement plans. And I put it on the show and then I heard nothing about it. I had found an article, but there was no news to the point that I started asking friends, have you heard anything about it? And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. Until the final rule came out this week And in fact, what I told you all those months ago is true, and the final rule is even a little stranger than what we talked about in that episode. So the Department of Labor very specifically talked about ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Governmental funds so you're looking for funds that are environmentally conscious socially conscious and governance conscious and they were saying that you couldn't put a fund in a retirement plan lineup if it was just there because it was a socially conscious fund that you had to consider the monetary side of it well when they came out with their final rule and that was Friday, um, October 30th, they didn't use the term socially conscious or ESG. But what they did say was that the only only stipulation that a fund manager can use when choosing retirement plan options is a pecuniary standard. And pecuniary factors are... (laughs) high-level governmental words that means monetary. So in other words, the decision on what funds to include in the fund lineup for a 401k plan can't have anything to do with any concerns other than monetary ones, which by default would eliminate most socially conscious funds because most socially conscious funds actually slightly underperform the S&P. And because they're more actively managed, they tend to be more expensive than an index fund. So this is really bad news, both for the investor who has probably their only investment is a 401k plan and wants to be socially conscious. Those funds are very likely going to be pulled from the fund lineup because Department of Labor says that the manager who selects the funds isn't acting as a fiduciary if they include them. Now this seems really short-sighted and very against all the investing trends. And even though you know by this point, I don't like gimmicks, I do like socially conscious funds. And I know that people really want to invest in them. And I hate to see that option taken away as long as the fees are disclosed, as long as the information going along with the fund makes it really clear to the investor what they're choosing. So that's very strange. Then even stranger, there is an investment in a retirement fund that your money goes into by default if you don't do anything else. Now, for most people, it's a target retirement date fund. So if you don't make an investment choice, your money is automatically put into the target date fund that matches the year that you would turn 65. But Department of Labor very specifically excluded ESG funds from being allowed to be these qualified funds, even if that decision had been made for pecuniary reasons, which tells me the Department of Labor just doesn't like socially conscious funds, and they're doing a lot to try to cause them not to be able to be part of a 401k fund lineup. I think that um, there's still going to be a comment period that's going to take a while for this to go into effect. I think we're gonna hear more about this and I will certainly keep you in the loop as we figure out what's going on. There's another House bill that's in um, out of the House Ways and Means Committee and it was proposed by Richard Neal, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Kevin Brady, a Republican from Texas, and it builds on the SECURE Act But it raises the age of required minimum distributions to 75 from the 72 change that happened a couple of years ago. I guess it was actually just last year. This has been a very long year. But so now rather than RMD starting at 72, this bill, and it's just still a House Ways and Means bill, it may not get out of committee, is going to raise it to 75. Additionally, if you have a retirement account with a balance of less than $100,000 and you follow a whole bunch of rules, you don't have to take a required minimum distribution at all. So this allows people with smaller amounts of money who are maybe still working having the ability to keep that money in the fund. And I know from experience that when people take RMDs, sometimes they roll them into another account and they keep the money invested but usually they just take the check and that check just disappears and when you have a small retirement account it's a very good way of losing little pieces of money every single year and then when you really needed it that money's just gone i think this is a great bill i hope it goes somewhere again i'll help you track the progress of it it may go nowhere but it's bipartisan Um, Ways and Means is a great committee so hopefully this will turn into something and I will keep you in the loop. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to Ask Peggy about your finances. My name is Peggy Doviak and this is the Plan Your Prosperity section. And today I want to talk to you about small business retirement plans. I have questions asked of me many times about different aspects of trying to set up a small business retirement plan. You know, for a company that has anywhere from three or four, maybe even up to a hundred employees, and you want to do something to help your employees save for retirement. Maybe you want to be able to save for retirement yourself, but you don't want the expense and the hassle of setting up a 401k plan. Now Before you make a final decision on what to select, you should talk to your own financial professional and you should look into the 401k plan to see if in fact it would give you options that you don't have with what I'm talking about today. So don't limit your universe to this, but I think there's two kinds of plans that people don't know a lot about and I'd like to talk about them today. One is a SEP, that's S-E-P, retirement plan, and one is a simple, S-I-M-P-L-E, retirement plan. And the really nice thing about both of these kinds of plans is you don't have to create a lot of complicated plan documents. Now, there's a couple of IRS forms that have to be filled out, but you don't have to go to the administrative cost and hassle of setting up a 401 k plan. So that's probably the biggest advantage of both of these. And they can be really effective tools, but they have some strong differences. So I'm going to start by talking about the SEP, which is an acronym for Simplified Employee Pension. Now, don't get confused, even though the word simplified is in the SEP acronym. A simple is a different plan. So start out by not confusing those. Now, when you create a SEP plan, the only money put into the plan is put in by the employer. So there is no match. There is no employee deferral. This causes the SEP not to be nearly as popular to set up because all of the financial obligation for the funding comes from the employer. Additionally, whatever terms you set up for the owner have to also apply to any sort of administrative or support staff. So if you're wanting to contribute a certain percentage to the owner, like yourself, you have to contribute that same percentage to your office assistant, to someone who's in their working in the office with you. Now, here is the number one mistake that I see people make when they're setting up the SEP. Who is eligible to participate? Well, it must be all employees who are at least 21 years old, worked for the company three out of the last five years. Okay, that's the easy part. Who earned $600 in compensation in 2020. and I'm just giving this year's number because this is the only year you would care about. It doesn't matter if they're full-time or part-time. It doesn't matter unless they're literally an outside contractor that you're paying through a 1099. If this person is on your payroll and they made more than $600, the IRS does not care how you classified them. They still count, as being part of the SEP. And I've run into two separate plans, one a couple of years ago and one just this last week where a previous advisor didn't make that distinction. So you need to know that when you do this, you're in it for anybody who works for you because I bet everybody who works for you made more than $600. You can contribute up to 25% of compensation but not more than $57,000. So if your salary is more than 57,000 times four, and if I'd been smart, I'd have done that math before I started taping, then you're limited to 57,000. Otherwise, you're limited to 25% of payroll. And there's some details there. If you actually start doing this, do some checking into how that 25% is calculated. But... You can, you do that, you don't have to fund it every year. It's the employer's option, whether or not to fund it. The IRS, IRS says they must be substantial and recurring contributions. So that's very vague language, but it does mean you can't just do it once and you can't put in $1.50. So substantial and recurring, but not every year. So if you have a really bad year like this year, just don't fund anybody's plan and you're going to be okay. Now, the simple IRA is much more popular to set up, mostly because it allows the employee to defer money and the employer has the option of doing a non-elective contribution where they put money in no matter what the employee does or doing a match. Again, super easy to set up, just some basic IRS paperwork. So here's a couple of catches on the simple that you need to know. If you are under 50, the most that can go into the account is $13,500, and you can put in an additional $3,000 if you're over the age of 50. So if you're 55 years old... The most you can put into this account is $16,500, and that's the combination of your deferral and any employer match. So it's not nearly as high as a 401k. It's not nearly as high as the SEP, but you can allow the employee to defer, and then you only have to match. Now, if you don't want to match, if you just want to put money in, it's a 2% non-elective deferral, or it is a 3% match of any money that they put in. So if they put in 3% of their payroll, you put in 3% of their payroll. If they put in 2%, you put in 2%. If you're having a bad year, and this is a simple IRA, you have the ability to reduce your match to 1%. And it can be any two out of five years. So let's say that you set up your simple and it's 2020 and everything's gone wrong and you've promised to match your employees. You can drop that match to 1% even if they defer three. So you have enormous flexibility as an employer. It's also, a little bit higher compensation level before you have to include people. It's $5,000 that they've earned in the last two years, and they're expected to earn $5,000 this year. So they have to have worked for you for a couple of years, made $5,000 each year, be expected to earn $5,000 this year. And that way, you will be able to... Um, If you had just somebody who was part-time or very incidental or who hadn't been with you for a long time, you wouldn't have to include them. The simple is by far more popular than the SEP. If you're a business owner and you just have one other person, the SEP may be what you want to consider. If you have more employees, simple might be a better idea. Just make sure before you put anything into effect that you understand the rules. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this is the section of the show where you have the opportunity to ask me a question. So if you'd like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com. That's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y dot com. And you can click the link where you can submit your question. So today's question is something that I'm asked commonly, and it ties to the article on gambling that I talked about earlier in the show. And the question is, Peggy, when I'm reading a financial article, how do I know whether or not I can believe what I'm reading? Is it unbiased? Or are they trying to sell me something? Or are they telling me the truth? It's a really good question. And especially if you're trying to make investment choices and be an active participant in your portfolio? These are critical questions to ask. Now, when we talk about what was happening in the gambling section, usually those stocks are chosen by individual investors, not financial advisors. If you're working with a financial advisor, they're probably not recommending high-flying stocks. They're probably not recommending really inexpensive stocks. So that's not likely to be happening, but you do need to ask them whether or not they're willing to be your fiduciary, that legal standard where they have the obligation to put your needs ahead of theirs. And that will help you avoid some pitfalls if you're working with an advisor and you're trying to decide whether or not you can trust what they're saying. But if you're doing the research yourself, Remember that online publishing is really easy. It used to be hard to get things into print, but today online it isn't. And it's not hard to have a great looking website and not really be very good at what you're doing. So you need to do a lot of research. You need to make sure that the person who's providing the information is qualified to do it. Who is the one touting the stock? What are their credentials? What is their background? If they're citing a study, you should look to see how the study was conducted and where it was conducted because marketing firms can do studies and they're worth exactly about that much. So you need to be careful that anytime they're showing results, you know how they gathered the data. If they're showing returns, look at the holding period sometimes companies will choose to show you very random periods of time to suggest that the investment is good so rather than a calendar year which you might assume maybe the returns they're showing you are from the period of february 15th to april 17th and that happened to be the point in time when the stock was going up always make sure you know what it costs to do the investment what are you paying the people And also make sure that if you wanted to sell the investment, it would be easy to do so. Is it liquid? You can get into odd investment liquidity issues, and sometimes small stocks just don't sell. What's the daily trading volume? Can you get rid of it if you want? Now, none of this is recommending that you should go down this road, but if you do, you've got to know what to do so you can be safer. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at peggydoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.